Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Morning, everybody. And such a sweet spirit of unity and worship over these weekend services as you feel it this morning. So great to be together. Uh, The armor of God, this illustration for putting uh, on and instilling the things necessary to win the battles that we face in our lives. When this illustration was given in the New Testament, uh, Rome was very powerful at the time and Roman soldiers were everywhere throughout the kingdom of Rome. So this illustration uses a very well-known picture of a soldier in the battles that we face. And if I could just quickly kind of uh, get us all tracking together on this series, maybe you missed last week or want to recap, and we'll just do a, a real quick, you know, previously on the armor of God, right? And catch us up. Last week, we introduced this series with this theme verse taking from the amazing, amazing, powerful words of the Apostle Paul uh, to the Ephesians where he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against what you might have thought it was but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So before we, we got to, says put on the armor of God, before we got to what the armor of God was, we looked in scripture for what it says is the devil's schemes, and we discovered that the devil's schemes are this, and this was the outline for last week, you can go back and listen to this if you want to hear this broken down and explain more, that the devil, he schemes to blind the minds of unbelievers, he tries to steal God's word from us, he sets traps to block us and to ensnare us, I had scripture with each one of these, like we're not making these up, we're not going to try to figure out what the devil's doing. God's word tells us this, that he works to discourage us. The enemy would love uh, for you to be operating in a spirit of discouragement. He seduces people into error, theological error, doctrinal error, and he tempts us, he entices people to sin. However, we also discovered this about the truth of God, and that is, say amen somebody, he is subject to our God, The enemy is subject to our God. And the work of God is stronger in your life than any scheme of the enemy. The one who is within you is stronger than the one who is in the world. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and your feet and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of 
of God so that you can have victory in your life. You notice how many times it says stand. Victory is standing at the end. Being able to go through every battle that you're going to face between now and the end and the finish line and, be, and make it through and be able to be standing at the end, making it to the finish line, pressing forward. How is that going to happen? The way you do that, the way you get there is to put on God's armor in an everyday way. That those battles, that those schemes of the enemy, that those hits that the world gives us don't defeat us, they don't damage us, they don't destroy us. And so today we're going to begin looking uh, at each different part of the armor that is taught there in Ephesians 6. And I just have three simple questions we're going to look at with these as we go through them is how does this piece of armor, what is it? Like how do you define it? How is it valuable? Why is that going to protect me in a, a, a battle, in a faith battle? And how do I put it on? How can I actually put that on and still it in my life to where it is a, a piece of protection? So the first piece of armor in Ephesians six fourteen is stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So today we want to talk about truth. What is truth? What is the belt of truth? And I don't believe that you can answer any question about truth without looking at or considering first uh, the first century writings of the Apostle John. And, and I, when I say that, I don't mean that just in a church setting, but like in any setting. Like if you were in a classroom setting or uh, you were with your friends or just a study on your own, you couldn't really walk away from a study on truth and say, oh, I really did the work there if you did not include some of the writings and perspectives of John the Apostle. The Apostle John is author of five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, which talks about the life of Jesus, uh, then three short epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John was part of Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter and James, so he was one of the 12 disciples, but you can see throughout the ministry of Jesus, John matures, and he's part of this, this tight inner circle with Jesus. In fact, he became... He's called one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And tradition teaches us that John was arrested in Ephesus and then faced martyrdom when his enemies threw him in a huge basin of boiling oil and he came out of it alive. They could not kill this guy. Like, I guess when God's not ready for you, uh, it's not time, right? And the authorities realize there's something miraculous happening with this guy and they can't do anything to him. And so the authorities sentenced John to slave labor in mines on an island of Patmos, an island that he was exiled to, banished to, uh, to work in slave labor. But that's where he received the visions that make up the fifth book that he wrote that's included in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. John was passionately, passionately devoted to the proclamation of truth. No one in scripture except the Lord Jesus himself had more to say about the concept of truth. 
He said it was his joy proclaiming the truth. It was his joy to see people walking in the truth. His strongest condemnations were for those who perverted the truth and led others astray, especially if they claimed to be Christians, if they claimed to be believers. And he taught us about testing what you hear to make sure it's from God. And I'm telling you, you would search and search and search to find anyone more passionate about truth throughout history than John the Apostle. And so it is no accident that there's this amazing account in the Gospel of John. We find it in all four Gospels, but we're going to read from his perspective today of Jesus right before he's crucified. He's going through trials in the middle of the night, not like trials like tribulation, but through courtroom trials, Jewish trials. Jerusalem was also occupied by Rome, so there are Roman trials. And Jesus is taken before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And Jesus and Pilate have a conversation, and it's kind of a cagey conversation with many questions back and forth. Some of this uh, is in your notes here. I didn't have room for all of it. On your notes, it begins at verse 33. I'm going to back up to verse 28 and begin reading there if you want to follow along on the screen or in your Bible. It says, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, what is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back to his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered and he answered the first question here. He says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus re responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. And then Pilate asks this question. He's not asking sincerely. It's like he's scoffing. Like, what, is, what is truth? What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime. But you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas, 
Barabbas was a revolutionary. So the Roman governor granted clemency to one criminal as an act of goodwill over these people that he's lording over, over the Jews whom he governed. And the choice Pilate set before them is you get to choose the person that I give clemency. And I can give it to this revolutionary and we have like a soft spot for this term because of like the American Revolution and and like you know Jesus like sometimes he's referred to as as bringing about a revolution but this was Barabbas was a killer I mean a guilty killer a rabble-rouser horrible person high-profile unquestionably guilty person so Pilate says I'll give you him or I could give you this miracle worker who's demonstrably innocent, says he's innocent, and the crowd chooses Barabbas to be released. Pilate, who was a monster, even he seems to be surprised that they would not want Jesus to be released. And he appealed to the crowd three times, we see in the accounts, uh, for the crowd to choose sensibly uh, that Jesus was innocent. But with loud shouts, they insisted, they chanted, they demanded that Jesus be crucified, Barabbas be released. And so you can kind of resonate in a way with Pilate's scoff of what is truth? Like when you look what's happening, when you look what people are deciding, when you look what's going on here, what is truth anyway? And I think we can kind of resonate with that at times when we look around and we see the rejection of truth. of What is truth anymore? But even as cynical as we might get, even on our most jaded day, when we hear people say, well, there is no truth. You've got your truth. I've got my truth. All truth is relative. Even on our most confused day or dark day or jaded day, we know that there is truth, right? Because if there were no truth, Christianity couldn't be true. If there's no truth, atheism couldn't be true either. If there's no truth, uh, you would never go to school. You'd never send your kids to school. Uh, You'd never go to church or take your kids to church. You'd never call somebody out on a lie if there were no truth. You'd never be offended by a lie. No, lies presuppose that there is truth. So even on our worst day, even on our most questioning day, on our darkest day, Of course there's truth. And I believe that if Pilate had asked that question sincerely, Jesus would have given him the answer. And we'll see actually later in this message today that Jesus gives an answer another time that question is asked. So what is truth? What is is truth? Let's ask the question sincerely. And truth isn't relative, truth is revealed. Truth isn't figured out by our circumstances. It's revealed by God who sits above our circumstances. That he can say, here's the truth that will get you through. So whenever, before I give you the the fill in here, whenever God has said anything about anyone or any subject, and he talks a lot about a lot of subjects. He talks about how we were created, who you were created to be, the purpose, the meaning of life, Uh, how we work, a lot of things about morality, and you can count on it when he says it, it's the truth. 
But what can seem, that's important because what can seem very true to me right now, sometimes I need somebody to reveal to me that that's not going to be true to me soon. And God can do that better than anyone else can. Let me ask you this. Do you ever look back at something in your life and and it just makes you cringe a little bit to think about that or look back at that season of life. Nobody, you don't look back at a picture and be like, what was I doing there? Or look back or, man, how could I have been in a relationship with that person? Or does anybody have, don't raise your hand, but you have a tattoo that you thought this is gonna be like my forever thing and it's just not been your forever thing and now you can kind of take it or, or leave it and stuff you were so sure about Maybe you're not as sure about it now. Why? Because more has been revealed to you in life. You've grown up a little bit. You've matured. And you have a different perspective. And maybe you've got more truth than you did before. When I, I, I'll use it. That's because something was told to you. Maybe you believed it or not. But you started believing something yourself. So I've got an illustration for that. I actually have several for those in my life, but I tried to use one that ends well. So this story ends well. It's more of an upbeat one. But uh, I used to drive. We had this Ford Aspire, and it was a two-door hatchback, and this one looks like like a really nice red. Uh, Mine was kind of a purpley color, and it faded pink. So when I was an older teenager, like 20 years old, I was driving a pink two-door hatchback. That was my car. It was very, I called it an insignificant vehicle because it was so small, so light, it did not have, nor did it need, power steering. That's how insignificant this car was. One time uh, I was driving on 58 and it started to rain and I hit the brakes and I skidded into the back of a pickup, a big giant pickup with a Uh, like a trailer hitch hanging down and the car bounces off the pickup I get out I run up to the cab of the pickup to see if they're okay the guy is surprised I'm even there he didn't even know he had just been rear-ended that's how (laughs) insignificant this vehicle this pink car was so there's a a place I had to get to um, most days of the week and there was a single one-lane bridge over just a low spot of valley in this road. And one day I get to the beginning of the road and there's those lateral road close signs says road close bridge out. And I'm like, oh, I gotta go that way. Uh, But I go around and I take the long way and it was a long detour. The next day I'm driving past that road, road close bridge out and I start thinking. I think, you know what? I bet the bridge isn't out, it's just closed. But I take the long way around. Next day I drive by there, I've already convinced myself that the bridge is just closed, bridge is not out, and so I thought, you know what, I bet the bridge is closed, but it's just closed to like gravel trucks and like people in big trucks who are all in tools and stuff like that, not for a guy in a hatchback with a drum set, right? Like it's not closed to me, to this car, but I take the long way around anyway. Next day I come by and the, those lateral road close signs are kind of separated a little bit. It says road close bridge out. Well, I already know that the bridge is it's not out, it's just closed. I know it's not close to me, it's close to like big gravel trucks that would like destroy the bridge. And so I sneak my little car through there and I go down and I, I'm driving and I'm like, yes, I'm gonna, cause I'm gonna kind of run behind, I'm gonna get there on time today. I get to where the road 
narrows to single lane, and wouldn't you know it, the bridge was out. <laughs> what in the world? Who would have thought that? And so I had to, you know, turn around and go back the other way. And I think about that all the time in my life, where I'll be convicted about something, and as soon as I start, you do it too, you'll resonate with this. Oh, well, that's not for me. Like, that's for other people. Like, that's for people who really struggle with that. Or, oh, yeah, maybe that person with the experience or the wisdom or that pastor saying, but that, you know, that, that couldn't be, that's for big gravel trucks. That's not for what we're doing. And we tell ourselves these lies. We start to believe the lie because we believe that lie. We begin to believe another one. And it leads us heading to where they said clearly, road was closed. It was closed. Bridge was out. The bridge was out. And sometimes God says, this is the truth of where you're headed and what it is. But we convince ourselves something else and it could end in disaster. So what is truth? And I would submit this definition today. And I read a lot of definitions of truth this week. That truth is what God says. Lies are what Satan says. The simplest definition for truth I know is truth is what God says. And where do we find out what God says? It's in God's word. Satan is the father of lies. God is the father of all truth. Satan says, here's how to make yourself happy. God says, well, here's where true life comes from. And when you, who you choose to believe determines your eternal destiny. In John 17, 17, in a prayer of Jesus that John recorded, sanctify them by the truth. Father, your word is truth. Now, most of you in this room have already made the eternal destiny choice of who you're going to choose to believe. And you've said to Christ, I believe you are the truth. But now that we're a believer, we face an everyday choice about who's telling the truth and who's lying. And it's no longer a matter of our eternal destiny that was sealed when we believed in Christ, elevated Christ, declared Christ as Lord. But now we're a believer as what we choose determines our everyday victory. Whether you live with a sense of victory or a sense of defeat in your everyday life, who do you choose to believe? Satan is a liar. God always tells the truth. So how does truth protect us? Why is it an armor that we put on? How does it protect us from the devil's schemes? Well, when you become a believer, uh, you become alive. Your spirit becomes alive. You're given a new heart. But you still have the same mind and you still have the same body. And you're taking your mind, your old way of thinking, and you're taking your flesh, your body, into this new life with you. And your mind has to be renewed, and your body has to be sanctified. So that's why you say, man, why do I still struggle with this temptation, even though I love Christ, and I love God? Paul says, I want to do what's good. Why do I still struggle with this whole thing? It's because your mind is not fully renewed. Your body is still being sanctified. It leads me to the next thought that truth is what keeps us from being tripped up by our temptations. When you and I think about this belt as being a part of a battle armor, it's kind of hard for us maybe to, to connect it as quickly as this New Testament audience would. Uh, but 
the, the belt had a specific purpose. All the men in those days, even the soldiers, would wear these long tunics. And if you try to run or fight or do something active in one of these tunics, like I don't know, ladies, if, I don't know if you've ever been tripped up trying to run in a dress, but it's kind of the same idea. And so they would tuck some of the gear and some of the tunics, some of the stuff into their belts so they were ready for battle. And then they'd be free to move. They would not be tripped up. Here's the point. You can believe, you can be in church, you can love God, going to heaven, still have your temptations trip you up. What is the answer to that? The answer is truth. Why is the answer to that truth? Because every time you're tempted, temptation is always a lie. John chapter 8. Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when Satan tempts, here's how temptation works. The enemy is never coming to you. You're never telling yourself thoughts in temptation that say, uh, let's go over here and destroy this relationship. Let's go over here and wound our body or destroy our our body. Let's go over here and and harm our church or harm our, our friend circle or anything like that. Everything we do is based on a belief that I do this because I believe it's good or it's bad, believe it'll help, if I do it or don't do it. And so when we're tempted to sin, the temptation isn't, hey, come over here and do this horrible thing. The temptation, it's much more like the Garden of Eden, where the enemy told a series of lies. You've heard me preach on that before, the five lies that he told there. Did God really say that? He says, oh, you won't die if you eat this. The enemy didn't say, hey, eat this and die. He said, you you won't die. You'll be like God. And the temptation was to believe a lie. The enemy comes to Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness. When he tempts him, he doesn't say, hey, uh, uh, if you'll do this, you'll lose everything that all of prophecy and everything has been working up to in all of history. Or Jesus, you'll lose everything that you've been building up to for the last 30 years of your life on earth. No, he says, if you'll do this, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, the enemy couldn't promise that. He's flat out lying. But temptations are a lie. And we'll say, if you do this, your life will be better. If you do what God says not to do, your family will be better off. If you do uh, what God did, God didn't really mean that when he said that. And if you'll do this, it'll feel good. You can have this and it won't, it won't hurt your body. It won't hurt what you're striving for there. You can participate in this action and it won't. You're missing out if you don't. And there's always a clever lie underneath. In the same chapter in John 8, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, what he says, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is repentance. Repentance is when you set your mind on the truth. You identify the lie, you turn from it, you set your mind on the truth. And it begins to set you free from sin because you've exposed the lie you're believing every time you do the thing that you don't want to do that God doesn't want you to do. So how do I buckle this on? How do I put it on? 
How can I put this on in a way that it makes a difference? How do I instill it in my life? Uh, let's, and, and this is where, in studying for this, that this took a turn for me. That I thought the truth week would end a very specific way. And we're going to stand for truth. And, and studying the writings of John in Scripture. See, John is known for all his writings on truth. He's also known as the apostle of love. And he's referred to as the, as the disciple Jesus loved. And so while he talks a lot about truth, he also talks a lot about love. And we'll read the passages and get to the point. But look at this with me now. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. So he connects the two. He says, you know all the writing I've done on truth? He says, you know how I'm known for all of this this writing on truth? And you know what I've called people who distort the truth? And, and, and how much that's a theme and what, you know how much my desire is for you to walk in the truth? And he says, I've even told you that my joy is to see you walk in the truth. And you know how I'm known as the apostle of love and writing about the love of Christ? Neither of those are anything if they don't connect, if they don't come together. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. So even if we feel guilty, even if we're facing doubts of, oh, God doesn't love me, or am I saved, or what am I doing in in life right now, or even if I feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. To know that I'm walking in the truth, Bible says there's a very specific action that lets me know if I'm doing that, and it lets me be confident in this life, and it's maybe not what you would have thought. It's, if you're taking notes, we choose to act in love toward others. That's how we buckle on the truth. When I choose to do that, it focuses me on the truth. And unless you and I act in love toward others, we'll be in doubt about the reality of God's truth in our life. I'll say that again. Unless you and I act in love toward others, we'll be in doubt about the reality of God's truth in our very own lives. It's when you choose not to think about it inwardly, but when you share it with others, to act in love with others. That's when it becomes very real. The more you pull into yourself, the more you'll be filled with doubt. The more you give yourself out, the more you'll be filled with confidence about God's truth in your life. Years and years and years ago, there were some very spiritual men called monks, and they decided that Uh, if they were going to be truly spiritual, they needed to disconnect from other people, disconnect from the world. And they went up into the mountains to pray and not see anybody. They were isolationist monks. I don't know if, if you ever had that desire of just, honey, let's go off the grid and live off red onions and filter our water and stay away from everybody else. Just me, okay. But, uh, Like, let's just get away from everything and we could, man, things could be better. We could live holier. 
But what happened is they did not get more spiritual, they did not get more godly, and they did not get less worldly. In fact, you can read their journals, they grew less spiritual, less godly, more worldly, and most of them walked away from God and had serious doubts about their beliefs. Most of them drew away from God. Why? Because they weren't giving themselves to others. It's an essential part of the Christian life, living out the truth. And there's some people who try to copy those monks uh, in churches today, churches, well, let's just pull away from everybody, isolate, insulate ourselves. Maybe you feel like that, like let's not go full on, but kind of monk, like monk-y kind of, you know, a little bit. And it's just very, it's very tempting to do that sometimes. And the teaching here is when you're facing doubt in life, when you're facing temptation, when you're facing lies about who you are, who God made you to be, when you're not finding victory in your life, you tell God about them, you let God deal with them, but you don't pull away. You keep giving yourself to others. Now, there may be certain people that you do need to pull away from because they're reinforcing the lies and there's more temptation around those types of people, but you don't stop loving them. How do you battle the temptations of greed in your life? By being generous with others. How do you battle the temptations of pride in your life? By acting in humility with others. How do you battle the temptations of of lust or of, of highs or an addiction? By dealing with others in integrity, by serving them, by telling them the truth, by loving them, by being gracious with them. You can't, I can't guarantee that all your problems will go away when you start giving yourself uh, to others like Jesus did. But all those problems, I can tell, guarantee this, become mere distractions. You're not living for your problems. You're not fighting in victory every day over that thing. When you have focused your life on something else, when you focus to something else on Christ and acting like Christ in love toward others. You might say, John, How can I love people when I disagree with them? Like, how can, you're telling me to stand for the truth. How can I love these people when they're falling away from the truth and there's no truth in them? John would say, well, Jesus gave up his life for you. Have you always been walking in the truth? Jesus let you identify with him even when you weren't fully walking in the truth, when there's stuff he disagreed with you about and Jesus gave up his life for us did he have to give up the truth to give up his life no that's one of the ways God gives us confidence in the truth and in the answers to our doubts it always comes back to Christ always each one of these why because truth is not just a what but a who It's not just a philosophy, not just a mindset. Truth is not just a fact. It's not just an idea. It's not just a statement. It's not something you learn from a book. It's not just a what, but a who. Truth is a person. When Thomas asked Jesus where he was going, how they could get there, the truth of all of that, John 14, 6, Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He said, I am God in the flesh, I am truth in the flesh. And the first part of the battle armor of a Christian in facing the battle against the schemes of the devil is truth. What is truth? 
Truth is what God says. Listening to what God says helps me in my temptations. How do I put it on? We follow Christ by acting in love toward others. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, uh, we see in your word the power of truth. It says in John chapter 1 that Jesus came full of grace, full of truth. And we just come before you today asking for that in our lives. Lord, we need the truth, the truth of who you are. We also need to know how to respond, and how to have grace, how to walk in love and give up our lives. Lord, I thank you for a, true, a, a church who um, gives themselves out to others, who stands in the, in the heat to pass out food on a, on a Saturday, who uh, serves one another in love. And who cares so passionately for their family, and their friends, their small groups, the people in this church, the people in their life. So God, we ask for measures of truth. We don't want to live by a lie. We don't want to be deceived by a lie. And we ask for measures for love. God, I pray that Rockbrook Place, Rockbrook Church would be a place where these two things collide. That we don't have to give up truth and we don't have to give up love. But that these words from the Apostle John could be lived out in our life and our faith. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. Even while we were sinners, he gave up his life for us to give us life. It's in Jesus' name we praise you. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.